Sairam dear listeners offering my loving pranams at Bhagwan's lotus feet I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series a triune pilgrimage this is Prem your friend from team radio sai and it is my pleasure to join you all again in this journey of going through the Bhagavad Gita and we have just started the 8th chapter in fact the real discourse of the 8th chapter begins with what Krishna says and we are going to be discussing today So as always let's begin with a short summary of what we covered last time as i said we started the eighth chapter which is referred to as akshara parabrahma yoga the last part of the seventh chapter at that point krishna drops a few terms he says adhibhuta adhiyagnya adhyatma and adhi daiva So the chapter begins with Arjuna asking Krishna to explain these terminologies. We also saw the context for this chapter as explained by Swami in Gita Vaini. Krishna had hinted that as long as you have cravings you will have grief and as long as you have grief you cannot attain God because when you have grief you want that to be removed and you seek things from the Lord wanting that grief to be removed and that's what makes you an arthartha or an arthi or a jignasu as the case may be but arjuna is surprised by this statement because we come to god for getting rid of grief and here is krishna saying get rid of grief and then you come to me so sami explains that the source of this grief is ignorance and one must deal with that ignorance and not necessarily the grief itself and even that cannot be done by merely wishing grief or ignorance away only way to get rid of this ignorance which is the source of grief is to bring in knowledge and once that knowledge is there one overcomes the fear of jara marana old age and death we will be discussing what this represents even today so this chapter is going to be about knowledge and to be more precise knowledge about that parabrahman who is supreme indestructible paramam aksharam the chapter begins with arjuna asking the first few things that he asks is what is that brahman what is adhyatma what is karma upurushottama what is stated to be adhibhuta what is called adhi daiva in the second verse arjuna continues and asks about what is adhi yagna and how can one remember god in the last moments because if you recall that is again one of the statements that krishna made in the end of the last chapter he says that you will be able to think of me in the last moments so arjuna is wondering is it really possible to have such control over one's thoughts in the last moments of one's life so these are the questions that arjuna asks So the discourse in this chapter starts with the third verse and I had also mentioned that what Krishna was saying has an historical context to it too where he was clarifying some of the supreme truths and deeper understandings I was referring to a verse that Swami would recite during his discourses where Swami explains why avatars come one of the points that Swami makes in that pretty uh, a poem of multiple lines is he says bhashyartha gopyamul paluku koraku meaning the avatar comes to explain 
the secrets of the interpretation of scriptures. So in these verses, Krishna the Avatar is doing that and settling a few arguments between various schools of philosophy, as I mentioned last time. I did play the third verse last time and then give you a meaning. So I think I'll play that verse again because I only spoke about one half of the first line. So I might as well play that verse again for you. And then I will summarize what I told last week and continue from there. So this is the third verse of the eighth chapter. Shri Bhagavan Uvacha Aksharam Brahma Paramam Swabhavo Dhyatma Muchyate Bhuta Bhavo Dhavakaro so the first thing he states is Aksharam Brahma Paramam Brahman is Paramam Aksharam meaning it is the supreme indestructible. There are some entities and substances that are Aksharam but for a period of time and probably in comparison to others. Clay, for example, is aksharam compared to the pot. But even clay eventually modifies with time. The panchabhutas are aksharam compared to the rest of creation. But even they are said to be undergoing change and modification and they dissolve at the time of pralaya. So Brahman, the supreme divinity alone, is paramamaksharam, completely beyond all modifications and the supreme indestructible because it is beyond the effect of time and space. The next thing Krishna says is Swabhavaha Adhyatmam Uchyate In this line Krishna explains what is Adhyatmam from the definition of Brahman that he has just given. In the beginning of the previous chapter we had seen that the supreme was said to have two components, the para-prakriti and the apara-prakriti. Para is the unmanifest supreme, apara is the creation that we can see and experience and interact with. So this para is also referred to as swabhava and apara as swarupa. Swarupa or the form is the manifest, swabhava is the subtle unmanifest nature. So in this statement Krishna says the Swabhava of that Brahman and the Adhyatmam are one and the same. This is again a statement that Krishna had made in the previous chapter itself where he said there is Paraprakriti, there is Aparaprakriti. The Lord himself enters this creation as the Jivatma. Right? That's a point that he had already made. This is the reiteration of that point and this is the clarification that Krishna gives but what is generally referred to as Adhyatma? The term here, what Krishna is saying is truly what Adhyatma is and he says the Akshara Parabrahmam and the Adhyatma is one and the same. But what does the word Adhyatma actually mean in Sanskrit language? The word itself means anything pertaining to the self. When I start with this inquiry of who am I? It is akin to peeling out layers and layers of aspects that are actually not me. 
Swami says in a discourse, in, in a very beautiful example, he says, you are sitting in this hall at this time. When someone asks you, who are you? You will not say, I am the hall. You are only seated there for a brief time. Same is the case with, say, your home. You are not your house. You are only living in the house. In the same manner, we are not the body. Our self is something that is subtler and deeper, but the body is only a temporary residence. So, Adhyatmam is the true self in each entity that is got by negating everything that is only a superficial layer. So, I have an entity within me which I can refer to as Adhyatmam. You have an aspect I can refer to as Adhyatmam and so is the case with every living being that we see. Every individual is described by five words according to Vedanta. Right? These are terms that you would have heard from Swami's discourses too. Swami has spoken about them. Swami has written about them. And these five aspects are Asti, Bhati, Priyam, Rupam and Nama. Asti means existence. Bhati means consciousness or illumination, to be more precise. Priyam is attractive or pleasing. Rupam and Nama is, of course, we know, form and name. There is a beautiful text called Drig Drishya Viveka. It's a, supposed to be a very lucid, simple text on the philosophy of Advaita. I mean, it's, it's so simple that you don't need any kind of... Uh, prior learning or reading to understand what this text explains. It is very simple with simple analogies and examples. It speaks about Advaita. So in this text actually there is a shloka where these five qualities are explained. The shloka goes Asti Bhati Priyam Rupam Nama Chetyamsha Panchakam Adhyatrayam Brahma Rupam Jagadrupam Tatodvayam the meaning of that shloka is asti bhati priyam rupam namacha iti amsha panchakam. These five asti bhati priyam rupam and nama are the five amshas of all things and beings. It says adhyatrayam. The first three that is asti bhati and priyam are divine attributes. Jagadrupam tatodvayam. The other two which is rupa and nama are attributes of the Jagat, the ephemeral world. So there are five qualities, Asti, Bhati, Priyam, Rupam and Nama. Of these five, the first three, Asti, Bhati and Priyam, it states, are divine qualities. Rupam and Namam, which keeps changing, are the quality of Jagat, this changing world. Swami explains this statement that Krishna makes in the shloka, Swabhavaha Adhyatmam Muchyate using this concept of these five amshas and that is why I explained that to you. I will read out now a passage from the Gita Vahini where Swami explains this. If you are looking for a reference, you can find this in the 14th chapter of Gita Vahini and Swami says, I quote, The scriptures describe Brahman as existence, knowledge, bliss, Sat, Chit, Ananda, right? This is a way of denoting it in the Vedantic parlance or vocabulary. It is 
also described as asti bhati and priyam are they the same or do they have any different meanings sat means that which persists in the past present and future the same meaning is conveyed by asti chit means that which is conscious of everything the same meaning is conveyed by bhati ananda means unending source of joy and so does priyam these three are found in every human being in every beast and the bird end of quote so first swami establishes that sat chit ananda and asti bhati and priyam are one in the same this sat chit ananda nature of the divine is present in each one of us as asti bhati and priyam the nama and rupa name and form it is that which keeps changing but that is anyway been established as not being my true self a few years ago i was a boy now i am a man today i am in this body and i am being referred to by this name tomorrow i'll be in another body with a different name right and that is why this asti bhati priyam is what we really are then swami goes on to explain how asti and sat is one and the same swami says in that same chapter and i quote take the first of these sat and this will become clearer the body is subject to destruction sooner or later everyone is aware of this nevertheless everyone is apprehensive of death no one welcomes death or is eager to meet it death is inevitable you have to meet it even though you do not welcome it or you try to avoid it all that is born has to die some day still no one likes to die what is the key to this paradox note this what does not welcome death what meets with death what leaves and what remains the answer the body dies the body falls what doesn't die is the atma but you delude yourself into thinking that it is the atma or you that dies the atma has nothing to do with death or birth the body experiences death the atma which is eternal true and pure nitya satya nirmala does not die you are the atma which does not like to die that is to say you are the eternal your nature is eternal the atma is the child of immortality not the body the atma is eternal not the body you are that eternal sat the atma the entity that has no death it is this atma that is in every casement so every being feels the force of that eternal in the form of eternal unchanging existence this is clear and unmistakable end of quote i find this explanation so lucid and beautiful and in fact i had made a mention of this when we were discussing the idea of jara maranam mokshaya as krishna had mentioned in the previous chapter liberating oneself from old age and death the body is the one that is mortal 
But who we really are is the Atma which is eternal or immortal. But because we mistake the body to be who we are, we try to make this body immortal and we try to avoid death, we fear death and we want to in some way deal with anything that leads to death and which is old age. Then Swami goes on to explain about Chit. I will again read out that portion as I feel this is self-explanatory and there cannot be a clearer explanation than this. Swami says, and I continue, Now take the second term, Chit, Consciousness. The force that urges you on to know everything. Everyone is eager to know about anything that is apparent to their consciousness. They ask the questions, What is this? How does this happen? Those who succeed in knowing may be only a few. Others may have only eagerness and not the steady intelligence needed to persist and win. That makes no difference. The essential fact is the thirst, the urge to know. Take a little boy to a market or an exhibition. You will note that the boy does not simply move along seeing the various things on both sides. He will be continuously asking the person who is leading him by the hand, What is this? What is that? It may be something he does not need or something that is beyond his power of understanding. And yet, the stream of questions will never dry up. Consider the inner significance of this hunger for knowledge. It is the power of intelligence that expresses itself. It is not its nature to leave things alone. It can't rest until knowledge is gained. So the hunger emerges as a stream of questions. The principle of intelligence is self-luminous, so it has the power to illuminate even inert things. That is why these qualities shine in people and make other things clearer to them. This is enough to make it plain that people have in them the principle of intelligence, Chit. End of quote. So in that passage, Swami explains how this illumination which is referred to as Bhati expresses as inquisitiveness to know and intelligence in general. There is certainly some intelligence even in animals and plants, isn't it? And we had discussed about that when we were talking about Krishna saying, I am the seed in every being, right? We talk about that as every seed has the intelligence of what it is going to become when it grows. Every egg has that intelligence of the entire process of making that individual. Then Swami goes on to explain about the third aspect. And again, quote from the same chapter, Swami says, Now for the third, Ananda. Even beasts and birds crave joy without any prompting or persuasion from others. They make every effort to win it. Not one of them craves grief or pain. They make every effort to escape from pain and grief and put an end to them when they become unavoidable. As for people, no further elaboration is necessary. They seek unbroken joy at all times and in all acts and activities. At no time or place, at no stage of life, do they desire grief. They pray for the joy and happiness of themselves and their kindred through whatever worship they offer. Devotional songs 
they share in, vows they fulfill, rites they perform, pilgrimages they undertake, or gifts they make for spiritual merit. When the body suffers from any illness and the doctor prescribes a medicine to cure it and make one whole, one wants even that to be sweet, soothing and pleasant. What is at the root of this desire? You are fundamentally happy-natured. Bliss is your very personality. You are not of the nature of the body that you occupy. You are Atma. Happiness is the nature of the Atma. That is why no one is surprised when you are happy. They are not inquisitive about your happiness for it is something natural to you. Surprise arises only when you observe something that was not there before. What you see every day does not arouse your curiosity. It comes only when something unnatural happens or is observed. End of quote. Then Swami goes on to give some examples like how a child when left alone keeps laughing to itself. Nobody wonders if the child is laughing to itself but the moment the child starts squealing and crying and shrieking then everybody in the household run to that child wonder what happened, why is the child crying, is there any ant or an insect. Same is the case with somebody who is walking down the road, a person who is looking cheerful. Nobody will stop that person and ask what happened, why are you looking cheerful. But let the same person look a little sullen or a little dull. People will stop them and say what happened, why are you looking sad, is there anything wrong, right? And Swami says that is because by nature we are the Atman and the nature of the Atman is bliss. Swami concludes that explanation by saying that these three qualities, Asti, Bhati and Priyam are the core reality of every being because Nama and Rupa keep changing and that's not who we are. And these three are the Swabhava of Brahman and these alone are what is referred to as Adhyatma, the true nature of each of us. So Krishna first defines Brahman as Paramamaksharam, then says the Swabhava of this Paramamaksharam Brahman is the Adhyatma in all. The next question that Krishna addresses is that of Karma. So in the next line of that same third verse he says Bhuta Bhavod Bhavakaro Visargaha Karma Sanyataha Bhuta Bhavod Bhavakaraha That which causes the origin and growth of beings Bhuta and Bhava There is a, another way of explaining this Bhuta also means that which already is beings that are already present and some people prefer to explain it that way because technically the jiva is not created. The jiva is always there because the jivatma and the paramatma is one and the same. So there is no question of the birth of a jivatma. So when you say bhuta bhavo, saying that that which is born and that which is being taken care of might not be very appropriate. So bhuta also means beings. So that which causes the existence of beings and that which causes the growth of these beings, karma sanyitaha, is called action. Visargaha is a word that has different meanings. One of the meanings is offering with reference to performing yajnas, right? Visargaha is an offering. If we take that as the meaning in this statement, then the sentence will read, 
that offering that leads to birth and growth is called karma the word visarga also simply means cause so in which case it becomes that which is the cause for birth and growth is karma so both of these are pretty valid it changes the meaning enormously but going back to what swami says swami uses an interesting word instead of visarga he does not say cause he does not say offering swami says in gita vahini that tyaga which leads to creation fostering and destruction of beings is what is called karma right swami says karma is a form of sacrifice so krishna is stating everything that involves sustenance of beings is karma and that is what has led to birth itself right that's a topic we've discussed when we were talking about karma and karma yoga too people who take visarga to mean offering often tend to connect this statement to performance of a yagna right and offerings that is made during a yagna that is also a valid approach in the sense if you recall krishna had said in the earlier chapters that creation itself came about through a sacrifice and we had seen how that is in line with what is mentioned in the purusha suktam and there is a certain connection to that in what krishna is going to tell in the next verses too but before we move to the next one swami adds to something that has been said already and this is more than what is there in the gita per se if you look at the point of creation still this statement holds good why are we born again and again why am i having consequences because i perform karma and that is resulting in all this consequences and me being born again and having my own set of duties and so on and so forth but how did creation come about how did this duality come about it came through a divine sankalpa a will taken by the lord so swami says that sankalpa is the first karma which is the seed for all karmas that came thereafter and this swami explains this is in the 15th chapter of gita vaini swami says the movable and immovable are all beings why the very act of the very resolution of creation is karma the very first which still activates all everywhere this entire universe and all the movements and agitations and activities in it are the direct consequence of that primal karma my divine will or sankalpa and as long as my resolution lasts the stream of action will flow along it can never go dry as long as i do not will it all that you do is to get drawn into this flood why you are but currents in this rush or ripples of water my will has prompted all action so action done in consonance with my will become part of me end of quote so as i said swami first says that when you tell that all birth and all sustenance comes from karma you should also look at the first karma that led to all of this coming into being and that is the divine sankalpa so swami says the divine sankalpa also is a karma which is like the overbearing karma which contains all of this and once you understand that you will realize that every action is 
a continuation of that first sankalpa which was taken and uh, in that last line Swami reiterates the way out of this cycle. He says, action done in consonance with my will becomes a part of me. But the important point is the assertion that all karma is also of divine origin and hence divine. The summary of that shloka, Swami explains in this one statement in Krishna's words, which he says is, it is enough if you know that Brahman, the universal, Atma, the individual, and Karma, all three are me and me alone. Knowledge of this will confer release. You need not worry about the rest. Swami then says, when Krishna says you need not worry about the rest, technically Arjuna should have said, okay, so this is it. This is the final statement. I don't have to worry about the rest. So what does Krishna want me to do? He wants me to go and take part in the battle and fight. So let me do that. But Arjuna doesn't do that. Arjuna pleads saying, please Krishna explain about the remaining terms too. Because you spoke of five terms and you only explained three of them. You only answered a part of my question. So he pleads with Krishna saying that even though you say I need not worry about the rest, please don't stop here. Explain about the rest too. And that is why Krishna continues and the Gita continues too. So I will play out the next verse where Krishna explains, as I said, this particular pause and Arjuna's asking is not part of the Gita, but Swami is beautifully explaining it to us along with what is happening in Arjuna's mind too. So we'll listen to the fourth verse of the eighth chapter. I'll give you a brief meaning of that and then we'll continue. Adhibhutanksharo bhavaha Purushaschadhi daivatam Adhiyagnyohame vatra Dehe deha bhrutam vara Adhibhuta, knowledge of the elements, pertains to my perishable nature and the purusha or the soul is the adhidaiva. I alone am the Adhiyagnya here in this body, O best among the embodied. So that is the fourth verse where Krishna continues about the remaining terms. As Swami said, now Krishna proceeds to explain the remaining terminologies that he had used. To remind you again, in the Gita these are shlokas that follow one after the other. But Swami breaks it up into a beautiful conversation between Krishna and Arjuna and also Swami explains the confusion in Arjuna's mind. I think that is the advantage of reading Swami's Vahini, isn't it? Swami not only gives us the explanation of what Krishna says, these are all statements that Krishna makes with two or three words, but Swami is taking the trouble to explain it to us with examples and modern examples. Not only that, Swami is also giving us a peek into Arjuna's mind and emotions as well. So coming back to this shloka, Krishna first addresses what is Adhi Bhutam. And once again, Swami's explanation is simply so beautiful. Krishna says, Adhi Bhutam Kshara What is referred to as Adhi Bhutam is my perishable nature. Adhibhuta is 
everything that declines and dies, everything that has a form and name. And Krishna says, this is also part of me, this is part of my perishable nature. Now this is interesting. So in this part, again I'm going to read a lot from Gita Vahini. So it's a heads up here, I'm going to be reading, quoting a lot verbatim from Gita Vahini because the way Swami writes it is so beautiful. Swami says in the 15th chapter of Gita Vahini, the whole perishable creation is lower nature, apara prakriti. All these embodied things on this side and on the other and everywhere are this whole perishable creation. In spite of this, they aren't different from me, said Krishna, pausing meaningfully. He did not continue the exposition. End of quote. The shloka is not yet over. The statement that I just read out, Adhibhutam Kshorobhavaha, is only one half of the first statement or the first line of that shloka. But Swami says that Krishna makes that statement and pauses. Imagine that. Swami's Gita Vahini does not merely tell us what Krishna spoke, but also tells us where Krishna did not speak, where Krishna took a long pause. And Swami goes on to say that no action of the avatar, not even his silence, is without a profound meaning. And then Swami continues, and I quote, They are not different from me. At these words, Arjuna was petrified with surprise. His head became heavy with doubt. His intelligence was befogged. His conviction was shaken. Doubts multiplied in his brain in frightening sequence. Why did he suffer like this? What was the reason for all this upset? After declaring, I am Sat Chit Ananda, the truth, eternity, entity, I am unaffected by death, decline or destruction, Krishna made this devastating admission that he was also the temporary transitional destructible body. This was the cause for all the confusion in Arjuna's brain. Anyone would be confounded by doubt at these conflicting statements. Krishna laughed as he saw Arjuna's plight. End of quote. So the same Krishna who described himself as Paramam Aksharam is now telling, I am also the Ksharam, the perishable. And Krishna allows this paradox to sink in Arjuna and that is why Swami says he pauses after making the statement. Then Swami says, before Arjuna could ask or express this doubt, Krishna begins to clarify. Again, I am going to read out Swami's words because they are so clear and self-explanatory. Swami says, and I quote, Arjuna, why do you feel lost? You are confounded because I said I am the short-lived body too, aren't you? Common folk will be shocked on hearing this. Their reaction will be to reject the idea, for it is difficult to reconcile the two. This body, which is temporary, transitional and transient, has affinity with me, for I am the base from which it springs. Without me, the body can never be. This will become clear to you with the summary of its origin. 
listen to the story of the origin of the body which clarifies the mystery. The body is primarily indebted for its emergence to the food that the parents consume, isn't it? Where did that food come from? From the earth element, the grains and other material that grew on earth. And the earth, the earth element, it evolved from the water element. Tracing it back, we find that the water element emerged from the fire element and the fire element from air, the air from ether and ether from the shadow that is the Maya of Godhead. That shadow is merely my apparel. My apparel which I willed and folded around me. That became ether. The ether got transformed into air. The air changed into the fire element. The fire element into water. The water became the earth. The earth grew grains of food. The food developed into the body. So is it clear, isn't it, that the body is also myself? Why doubt this then? Therefore, I am also this perishable creation, Adibhuta. As much as I am, as I said before, Brahman, the individual soul and karma. The cause is the same as the effect. I am the primal cause, so I am also the effects too. End of quote. So in such a beautiful way, Swami explains how the Lord is also the perishable aspect, the Adibhuta. He is the imperishable Supreme Brahman. He is also the individual Atma, that is Adhyatma. He is also the perishable beings, the Adibhuta. Swami says, everything starts with Maya, delusion. And what do we mean by that? The Absolute appears to be limited and manifest. That's what is Maya all about. Which means... That appearance itself is fake. We call it Maya, we call it an illusion, we call it a trick. So however much the modification that follows may be, it all still belongs to that same Maya and that Maya is an illusion that stops us from seeing the divine as divine. I go to sleep and let's say I have a dream. In the dream, I get married, I get 10 children, those 10 children get married and they each have 10 children. But the reality is, I am the source of the dream and I alone am. Every son, daughter, grandchild I dream of are only part of the same dream and that dream dissolves into me when I wake up. And that is the case with all this multiplicity. Yes, it is transient. Yes, the body is transient. Yes, it is kshadam. Yes, it undergoes modification. but it is all nothing but a part of that dream which Maya is and that is what Krishna is saying. That is the essence of the statement that Krishna is making. I alone am. Then Krishna comes to Adhi Daiva. He says, Purushaha cha Adhi Daivatam meaning and the Adhi Daivata is also Purusha. That's just a simple statement but it needs a lot of decoding just like the previous statements that we went through. 
what is this adi daiva we saw what is adi bhuta we saw what is adi atma what is this adi daiva in general usage in this vedantic literature when we talk of the different types of sorrow or misery we face in life one of them is adhi daivika maybe in some of the context we might come across this explanation again there are the different types of tapas they are often spoken of as the tapatraya adhyatmika adhi daivika and adhi bhautika right so in that when we use the term adhi daivika it means the causes for sorrow that are by forces that are beyond us it could be a natural disaster it could be an accident which we had nothing to do with we just happened to be there and get affected so adhi daivika means that which belongs to a realm which is beyond us adhi daiva literally means the superhuman forces pertaining to the godly forces i had made a mention of this before that just like how some schools of philosophy speak of adhyatma as the core of the individuals like you and me they speak of adi dhaiva as the core of certain celestial forces behind the sun we say that there is a sun god behind fire the element we say there is a agni deva similarly we speak of many vana devatas many such deities and smaller beings so krishna says the adhi daiva behind all these celestial entities is also the same purusha the word purusha itself means he who pervades everything right that's another explanation for that word and swami says this purusha is existent in all beings as hiranyagarbha we may not have enough time to discuss this concept of uh, hiranyagarbha at this point in time but if i can put it very briefly hiranyagarbha is the seed of creation when a seed sprouts you see leaves stems flowers fruits and so on and so forth when the plant is in the seed state all of these different things that we spoke of leaves flowers etc are contained within the seed in an unmanifest form isn't it so the lord exists in all as this hiranyagarbha the golden egg as it is translated and swami has also spoken extensively about it in his various discourses so maybe there will be an opportunity to speak about this later so swami explains the relationship between this hiranyagarbha and the adi dhaivatas as follows in the gita vaini swami says just as people are served by their senses the hiranyagarbha is served by the adi dhaivas proceeding from the divine what role do these adi dhaivas or demigods play these deities serve the divine purpose that is to say surya illumines the eye the divinities of the quarters the ashtadik palakas really divinities of the quarters enhance the ear the indra motivates the hand these and other presiding deities are the senses of hiranyagarbha however great a spiritual aspirant might be 
whatever eminence they might have reached, they can attain the highest only through this Hiranyagarbha. Hiranyagarbha is indeed the Godhead. There is no distinction between the two. End of quote. So for this Supreme Purusha, the celestial bodies become like the senses. Very similar to a concept that is explained in the Purusha Suktam. But the most important idea is that the same Purusha for whom the sun is the eyes and the other devatas are the karmendriyas exists in each one of us as the Adhyatma, as the Hiranyagarbha, the essential core. And just in the same manner as it uses the celestial deities, the Purusha in the body uses the senses and the various Indriyas. The last statement that Krishna makes in that uh, shloka is pertaining to Adhi Yagna. He says, Adhi Yagnaha Aham Eva. I alone am the Adhi Yagna. Atra Dehe, here in the body, Deha Bhratham Vara, O best among the embodied or O best among people. This is a simple and direct answer to Arjuna's question which he had placed before Krishna in the second verse of this chapter. Arjuna had asked, if you recall, Adhi Yagnyaha Katham Kaha Atra Dehe Asmi Madhusudana Who and how is Adhi Yagnya here in this body, O Krishna? And Krishna replies to that in this statement, Adhi Yagnyaha Aham eva atra dehe deha bhratham vara. I alone am the adhiyagnya here in this body, O best among individuals. Now, what is this adhiyagnya? As we saw the general usage of the other words, what is the general usage of this word adhiyagnya? Just like adhyatma is the true self or the center of the self, adhibhuta is the core of all beings. Adhi Yagna is the center of all Yagnas. In the fourth chapter when Krishna was speaking about Yagnas, we came across the Brahmarpanam Shloka. Right? I'm sure you'll recall that. Where Krishna said, the one who offers is Brahman, the one who receives is Brahman, what is offered is Brahman, the process of offering is also Brahman. What Krishna says here is a reiteration of that very, very profound statement. Aham eva adhiyagnyaha. I alone am the adhiyagnya. There is no other deity, Indra or Varuna or any such gods. Because whenever we talk about yagnyas, there will be some yagnya purusha that is being addressed, some deity for whom the offerings are made. But here Krishna is saying, Aham eva adhiyagnyaha. Whatever is the yagnya performed, I alone am the essential deity that receives. Because he has already told that I am Adhidaiva, right? When you talk about Indra, Varuna and such deities being the recipients of Yagnas, Krishna has already stated that I am the Adhidaiva. They are merely my agents, right? I am the Daiva of all Daivas. The Brahman alone is the Lord of all gods. So where is the question of there being any other Yagna Purusha? I am not going to go into the concept of yajna again. We spoke extensively about that topic when we were going through the earlier chapters. But just recalling one conclusion that we had come to, 
Yajna is a process by which we bring God between our actions and the results of those actions, right? The best illustration is that of the Brahmarpanam Shiroka itself. When I eat food, I perform the action of, say, gathering the food and the act of putting the food into my mouth and chewing it and taking it inside. That food then nourishes my body. Now, when I convert this simple process into a yagna, the act of acquiring and the process of eating becomes my sacrificial karma or my sacrificial offering. And me receiving nourishment from this food becomes the yagna phala, the fruits of the sacrificial offering that I've made. Which means the yagna purusha or the one who receives the offering is within me. Isn't it? And that's the essence of the other shloka that we chant for food prayer, Aham Vaishvanuro Bhutva. So the one who is making the offering is this jiva, which Krishna has already established by saying that the Brahman is the Adhyatma. Now the one who receives is the Adhiyagna, whom Krishna is saying, Aham Eva Adhiyagna. I alone am that Adhiyagna too. The point Krishna is reiterating is, I am the doer and I am the enjoyer too, the karta and the bhokta. And Swami explains that, that the Lord is the recipient of all sound, touch, sight, taste and smell through the five senses in all beings. He is not only the entity responsible for action, He is also the entity for which that action is being performed the recipient of the fruits. He is the benefactor as well as the beneficiary. In the Gita Vaini Swami says that this one statement was enough to make Arjuna understand when he said, Aham Eva Adhyagna. Swami explains that that was enough. I mean, more than that, nothing needs to be said. But in the Gita Vaini Swami says that, but for simple people, it needs to be explained a little more. So let me read out. That part where Swami explains this, right? This one statement that Krishna makes, how is the Lord the Ati Yagna? Swami says, and I quote, It will be easy if we take some illustrations from life. When you want a breeze, you switch on the fan. When you want light, you switch on the lamp. When you want to cook, you light the stove. When you want to address a vast audience, you fix up a mic and a loudspeakers and switch them on. Or if you require printing, you operate the press with a switch. Consider these as separate operations and you will notice that they are unrelated to one another. Light and air, heat and sound are unrelated. They are distinct in every way it would seem. But for all these, the motivator the karta is the same, the electric current. The expressions, the manifestations may be different, but the basis, the inspiration, the latent potency, the base is the same. Like the current, Godhead operates through all instruments and awards the consequences of all activities of the instruments too. He is the bestower of the fruits of all actions. Like the current, 
He is the inner motivator of all beings. Since He is the activator of all actions, He is called the Lord of all sacrifices. Adhi Yagna End of quote. So these, as you can see, are all very brief statements, right? When Krishna, when Arjuna asks, who is Adhyatma? Who is Adhyagnya? Who is Adhidhaivata? The simple answer to that is, Krishna is saying, I am all of that. I am Brahman, I am the Atman, I am Karma, which has caused all of this variety. I am the Adibhuta, I am the Adhidhaiva, and he says, I am the Adhyagnya too. But the beautiful thing is we have the opportunity to go through Swami's Gita Vahini where Swami explains each one of this with simple examples that we encounter in our everyday life and makes this understanding so clear. Because the mind is complex and it needs this explanation. Otherwise that one statement that everything is divine is good enough, right? That is the essence of all that is being said. But the mind is not in a state where it can accept the truth as it is. You have an entire feast in front of you in the form of a plate with all the dishes laid out. But the body is such that it can take that food only one bite at a time or one morsel at a time, isn't it? And this is the process by which that manana can happen. Though the truth is one, the truth is simple, it can be made in one statement. The truth cannot be swallowed in one statement. It needs to be literally mulled over, chewed and the juice being taken slowly and made a part of us. And that process can be done only with the help of the words of the Guru. When the Guru explains each of these statements, I just spoke of two shlokas today, right? And those two shlokas are merely four or five statements made one after the other. But each of those statements have such a deep meaning to them. This concept of Adi Yagna, the concept of Yagna itself is profound, right? I am sitting here. The process of eating as a Yagna, as we discussed when we spoke about it, is such a profound concept. Though I am picturing this as a Yagna, I am the person putting the food inside and I am the person digesting the food. There is no external agency who comes and digests this food and gives the nourishment to the body. So it is me who is doing the action and it is me who is enjoying the fruits of the action. So Krishna comes in and says, the karta, the one who is doing, the one who is making the offering, the adhyatma is me. The one who is accepting the offering, which is performed, which is like yagna that you are performing, which accepts it, that adhi yagna is also me. Then I nourish this body. This karma which nourishes this body is also me. This body which perishes, the Adi Bhuta, that is also me because everything is that beautifully Swami explained. Where did this body come from? Where does this world that we see come from? It all comes from the same elements. Where do those elements come from? It comes from the Maya. Where did the Maya come from? It came from the Lord. But this truth has to be constantly reminded to ourselves. And this whole exercise of going through the scriptures, listening to Swami's discourses is all only that process of mananam where the truth is taken in small mouthfuls, chewed, mulled over and the essence slowly assimilated. 
So with that, dear listeners, I'll conclude this week's episode of the Gita series. I most humbly offer this at Swami's lotus feet with enormous gratitude to Swami for having given us the opportunity to dwell into these sacred texts and most importantly for Swami to have explained this with so much trouble. I don't know where Swami sat and wrote these articles, right? We've heard about how Swami wrote articles for Sanatan Sarthi where Swami was traveling, how busy Swami was, whether Swami sat in his room and wrote it, whether Swami sat in a corner, in a, in a go-down, in a, in a bathroom and wrote it. Because Swami has done all this. I'm not exaggerating this. In the midst of all his busy schedules, Swami wrote and given us such phenomenal, beautiful, crystal clear explanation of these cryptic statements of the Bhagavad Gita. We cannot be grateful enough to Swami. In those few words, thank you dear listeners for joining me week after week. Do join me again next week for the continuation of this pilgrimage of the Gita series. This is a try on pilgrimage. Till I meet you next week, keep safe, take care, Jai Sai Ram.